Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. That we're having a uh, discussing right now. Now, uh, so after when this is report, uh, what happens at the end is HSBC decide to close the account. Uh, but uh, the police then ask for the account to be frozen, then the money is frozen because there was alleged fraud going on in the account because apart from using money for protest years, uh, there was said to be money being purchased on insurance policies. So, but Spark Alliance claimed those are insurance policies, you know, to purchase, to cover, uh, you know, people who were uh, alleged to be protesters and in case of, you know, health reasons or whatever reasons, uh, if, uh, if their police are doing police detention, if anything goes wrong and so forth. Welcome to the Jersey Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor of the Jersey Professional Magazine. And once again, we have with us Professor Angus Young from Hong Kong Baptist University. This would be a part D to um, podcast where we were looking at sort of AML in the time of COVID and now we're looking at wider political risks. So, hey, Angus, how are you doing? Not too bad. Good. Thanks. Okay, so we were sort of looking at, I guess, the wider, the, the political challenges, the political risks that businesses would face in this environment. I mean, apart from obviously the coronavirus pandemic. And one of the things that you mentioned in the last podcast was the Chinese security law. So I guess you could just give me a bit of an overview. You know, what are the political risk, risks and what do businesses have to face, whether they're international or local? Yes, uh, I, I guess the uh, many people would have read a lot of things about the, the, the security law and so forth. But there's actually uh, two sides of the coin. Uh, one side is that the securities law was, uh, there was an attempt earlier, uh, early in 2003, if my memory is correct, to enact uh, Article 23 about security laws in Hong Kong, but that failed because of a wide, uh, a very large uh, public protest. So that bill was withdrawn. So ever mm. since that, that topic has been overhanging, but there was no attempt because the any Hong Kong government would have known then and know now that it would be impossible to get it through the Legislative Council uh, to have the law enacted and obviously there will be so much uh, public protest that it will be very difficult to police it. So, but unfortunately what happened last year and continued this year is that the political activism sort of uh, what I, I would describe as crossed the line for the Chinese level of, uh, you know, uh, able to upset Hong Kong's autonomy, because when the line was crossed, because there were discussion about independence of Hong Kong. Now that mm. is, you know, one of those uh, buttons that you press, and you know, things just go in a different directions. And obviously, last year's uh, social unrest was also damaging, uh, uh, you know, to lots of physical things in terms of the trains. Uh, even buses, uh, traffic lights, uh, road railings, uh, past roads. That means it, because the, uh, you'll see the pavements in Hong Kong will use bricks to, to lay the pavements. And so the unrest, uh, what happens was the uh, summer protesters uh, took the bricks and then threw uh, either police or at shops as well, uh, mm -hmm. especially in terms of uh, banks in China. So, so, sorry, Chinese banks in Hong Kong. So you'll find that uh, currently, Chinese banks in Hong Kong, which is branches, will have a large wooden panel right in front covering all the glass. And the panel now is reinforced with uh, aluminium or steel uh, to make it, you know, really like a, a Fort Knox. So you find that 
very strangely for all the Chinese bank branches in Hong Kong having covered and having double up security and so forth. But even before the securities law implemented, last year, there was, uh, late last year, there was a case when there was an organization called Spark Alliance. Now, this is reported widely in the media, so I'm going to just discuss what the media has given because I don't have primary source information. Right. What happens was the police then froze the accounts of the amount for Spark Alliance, which was supposed to set up uh, allegedly as a company, but then what it became was that they collected money for protesters. So the money collected were in the tens of millions of dollars. Now we're talking about 18, 20 million Hong Kong dollars. Now the money was supposed to go for defense, legal defense costs of the protesters and of course any other costs related to, you know, because they'll be most likely they left home, uh, they left their jobs, so to support the protests. And then they get donations, not only small amount, but large amount from unnamed sources. So this is where the bank, uh, HSBC, which holds the account, started making questions to Spark Alliance. You know, where you get your money from, you know, all the email questions. They also then uh, put in a report to the Financial Intelligence Unit by saying about suspicious transaction. Now, this is without securities law in Hong Kong that we're having uh, discussing right now. Now, uh, so after when this is report, uh, what happens at the end is HSBC decide to close the account. Uh, but uh, the police then ask for the account to be frozen. Then the money is frozen because there was alleged fraud going on in the account because apart from using money for protest gears, uh, there was said to be money being purchased on insurance policies. So, but Spark Alliance claimed those are insurance policies, you know, to purchase, to cover, uh, you know, people who were uh, alleged to be protesters in, in case of, you know, health reasons or whatever reasons, uh, uh, if their police, uh, during police detention, is anything goes wrong and so forth. So they had, uh, the police uh, then said it was, there was elements of fraud, there was elements of deceptions, obviously, and therefore, they froze the accounts. Uh, they also arrested others, not just Spark Alliance. There are other cases where a smaller amount of money is collected, but someone claimed that to also go for the legal bills, but it is an account of a young teenager. We're talking about a large amount of monies. So, and of course, not only teenager, we also had uh, uh, adults having their accounts, large amount of money went in. Uh, uh, and again, the person claimed to be used for protest-related uh, things that um, the police then arrest because suspecting of laundering money. So there was, through this political unrest, the difficulty was to look for real proceeds of crime and things that are purely political. But of course, uh, there were some organizations being set up for one purpose and then used for another, which caused for a certain level of fraud or deception coming in. Also, there was one more thing uh, is, is worth to highlight is that um, even some organizations were deregistered from the company's registrar saying that you claim to be a trading company, but you're just fundraising for some other purposes. So there was those allegations in the media that came out. But I want to also highlight HSBC when they uh, were 
known to be the bank that informed the police about the suspicious transaction, one of their major branches was um, uh, was then uh, there was certain protests going there, and then uh, there were damages onto the bank's property. Uh, somebody threw a petrol bomb into while the bank was closed in the night. That is, obviously, no one was hurt, but certainly there was vandalism. Uh, they mm -hmm. broke the glasses, they broke the security glass, and they tried to throw in firebombs. So even that particular branch for HSBC had to be, you know, boarded up uh, with wood and then reinforced with, with metal uh, or aluminium plates behind. So until today, even though months has gone away, that particular branch still have this covering on the outside. So does all the Chinese uh, banks in Hong Kong. So with that in mind, you can see that uh, for the AML professionals is that they would have to sort out in terms of the transaction money coming in and out. Are those for political purpose? If it's suspected political purpose, are therefore illegal purposes associated with political uh, uh, incidents or political reasons or motivations behind that? So that complicates the matter. Uh, while of course the, the, the simple thing for a compliance profession in Hong Kong to do is to report it to the FIU, the Financial Intelligence Unit, uh, as suspicious, as suspicious uh, transactions. Uh, but I think for foreign companies, uh, that creates a level of uncertainty that who they're dealing with in Hong Kong. Because since then, there's also what they call locally in Hong Kong, the yellow and blue economy. The yellow are the ones who are sympathetic uh, to you know, the, the, the situation in Hong Kong politically. The blue are the ones who would be said to be on the side of the police or the government or pro-governments. So, but, the, but this distinction is mainly to the small, medium enterprises. So the large enterprises tend to be on the blue side and the small ones, there are few, not a lot, but it's getting more and more difficult to identify them. And so uh, if you're dealing with the financial accounts with the banks or accounting for these uh, yellow companies or so-called yellow, now, for the compliance professional, especially AML, the question is that, okay, are these transactions suspicious? Uh, should we then carry out our due diligence? And especially with companies dealing with these small vendors as suppliers, is there a risk of, you know, certain uh, reputational risk? Because they may say that, you know, the large companies dealing extensively with this one, which was later, later found to be a yellow business uh, siding with the social unrest. So these political things have emerged even before the securities law. Now, with the securities law, we still don't have much details. But what we know is that they'll legislate on successions issues, on subversion issues, on terrorism and foreign interference. We also know from what they released was that uh, certain serious crime may be trialed in China. So the argument came that, oh, this is a backdoor to extradition, which um, the government withdrew the bill earlier last year, sorry, late last year. Uh, but the Chinese government says, no, they're only doing it for very, very serious crimes. And of course, there's incompatibility between the civil code system and the common law system in Hong Kong versus the Chinese one there. Uh, there are also discussion whether there should be jury trials. 
because uh, some people say it's impossible to get an impartial jury. So all these are up in the air. However, what would be clear is that if a certain company or individuals are linked with these uh, subversion or terrorist activity, uh, I guess for the Hong Kong AML professionals is they have to really quickly pick up this and there's no software out there to help them because uh, the laws are made different. For example, terrorism laws in England, uh, UK, in Australia are different, will be very different one in Hong Kong too. And there will also be a lot of legal challenges after this law is enacted uh, to say that it reaches the basic law. Uh, so it'll be all up in the air. And so for the AML professionals, this adds to the level of uncertainty and difficulty while they operate. So I'm only uh, uh, looking from this end, I think for them, they very quickly pick up uh, and assess the risks uh, without necessarily jeopardizing the company's business with the third party relationships or even with the overseas counterpart. And for the West, uh, there may be some international companies in Hong Kong downsizing or maybe uh, withdrawn entirely, uh, not directly because of the securities law, but uh, as the economy uh, uh, activity has gone downwards and recession deepens, uh, some companies might just decide to withdraw uh, entirely from the Hong Kong market uh, and save themselves costs because you know these international companies obviously operate under quite a lot of economic and financial stress internationally. So you know, Hong Kong might just be one of those casualties. Yeah, and, and that was actually going to be my follow-up question. I was going to ask, you know, with that uncertainty around the securities law, what impact would that do with investment and businesses coming to Hong Kong? Um, Something I'm interested in, I hadn't really heard about that breakdown between yellow and blue companies before in the Hong Kong space. So would it be that yellow companies, then there's definitely that greater level of um, scrutiny, um, especially if they're coming through the banks in terms of their transactions? Yes, unfortunately, mm -hmm. many of those uh, yellow companies are small uh, eateries, small restaurants, uh, hairdressers. And even uh, this week we had in the news, uh, one of the retail uh, shops in a major large shopping mall put up a statue of a protester mm. inside their shops. So the shopping mall management says, you know, you've got to take down that statue. The shop is saying, you know, how we want to decorate our shops internally, you know, it's our business. But then uh, in the lease, there is contractual obligations to ensure that the standards of decoration meets uh, the shopping mall's uh, requirements. So it's actually in the rental agreement itself. So the sh shopping mall is just uh, making the demands according to what they think is fit or unfit. And of course, the social unrest uh, is still in the shopping malls. We still occasionally get um, a protest movement inside shopping malls. The reason why I do that is because police are less likely to fire tear gas. Uh, and so some protesters feel they may be safer in a shopping mall, but there has been certain shopping malls um, that has been uh, uh, trashed by some of the uh, uh, those actions. Uh, there have been glass broken, there have been shops uh, broken into, there's no looting, uh, mm -hmm. but certainly when they break into those shops, they, they throw everything on the floor and sometimes uh, they, they, they burn things on inside those shops. And those are the shops that are clearly selling uh, Chinese goods from China, things like mobile phones. So you have a Huawei shop uh, 
in one of the shopping malls that were uh, obviously vandalized. Um, and uh, some of those are just, you know, companies that were think to be related. So there are uh, certain sh uh, chain stores that sell um, groceries or groceries related areas uh, mm. that were firebombed because that the owner uh, was from mainland China, but he claims that he has nothing to do with taking sides. But the shop, uh, which have over 30 over branches in Hong Kong, continually uh, uh, on occasions, certain branch will get vandalized. So mm. it, it just makes it really difficult to know who is what. But certainly the, the yellow ones, when, you know, if it's all over the news, uh, the, the banks have to then decide whether this is just media reports as a uh, rumor or is there some truth to it? And if there's some truth to it, whether that would escalate because if the shop is supporting financially to certain alleged individuals who might be later charged in court for a criminal offense, whether uh, the shop is actually uh, uh, funding uh, these people. Uh, yeah. That would be the next question coming up. That would be very difficult uh, to assess. But, yeah, and I guess that's pretty interesting. I mean, I had a, an interview earlier this year when, um, before it was a pandemic and the coronavirus is just um, something that people were just figuring out what it was. Um, and this individual who was operating out of China had suggested that many of the international companies and multinationals um, tended to have um, business continuity plans that were, in a sense, prepared for a level of political disruption. Um, obviously, for a short period of time, I don't think that it was prepared for the coronavirus in this length of time. Um, so I, I guess I'm curious to know, you know, while they may not have been prepared for the pandemic, do you get the sense that maybe multinational companies are kind of prepared for maybe like this kind of political tensions between uh, China and Hong Kong, for instance, in terms of their looking forward? Um, I think they're now more well prepared because the social unrest last year uh, was a big shock into the systems. Uh, in particular, for instance, the large famous brands of expensive clothing from Italy, from America and, and France and so forth that actually sets up Hong Kong as, you know, their retail uh, mecca for Chinese mm -hmm. tourists coming in. Uh, that was a big shock in the system. So there are Gradually, we're hearing the big brands are starting to withdraw from Hong Kong because they think that tourists are not likely to return to Hong Kong even after post-COVID because um, the ongoing uh, social situation uh, makes certain uh, tourists nervous from coming back. So they're starting to withdraw. And of course, the rent in Hong Kong, as you have heard, for is, is one of the world's most expensive so they start to withdraw. So they're certainly doing that. And the, the large shopping malls uh, would certainly, which are listed large property companies, would certainly be hurt by this. So that, that could explain why, you know, the large businesses in Hong Kong are very supportive of, or are deemed blue and very supportive of the government. But with this uncertainty going on, it certainly makes it difficult uh, for foreign companies or international companies to invest more in Hong Kong. Uh, I think downsizing it would be inevitable at some stage and uh, withdrawal at some stage because if they think that uh, it no longer benefits them. And of course, at the same time, the Chinese are offering uh, also concessions for companies to go directly into China. So some non-American companies may decide to go directly into China as opposed uh, to have the operations in Hong Kong. Right. 
but yeah, and I, I guess that, yeah, I, I can see that. And I guess one of the things, uh, another question for you then is you, you said that blue, that big companies tend to be blue and international companies, larger companies tend to be blue. And that is, I guess, assumed because there's a certain level of assumed security um, on that level, as opposed to yellow companies seem as to be supporting something more disruptive. Is that a, a good reading of that? Uh, I think the yellow ones are clearly uh, leaning towards the political side. I yeah. think the blue is not necessarily supporting the government, but certainly supporting stability. So the international yeah. firms, uh, I don't think they, they would uh, have any vested interest in uh, Hong, local politics in Hong Kong, but they certainly want stability. They yeah. want law and order and stability. So they may be colored blue, not because that politically they're, they're you know, citing China or Hong Kong government, but certainly because they're citing with stability and so forth. Uh, but of course, at the same time, these companies would say, you know, uh, they are sympathetic to some of the Hong Kong's plight in terms of the demands for freedom. So, but they, they're not necessarily uh, wanting to take sides, but certain depiction of their action may put them into the blue camp willingly or unwillingly. And then the G7 then um, looking to sort of respond um, to the total Chinese security law. Uh, would that complicate things further from a political risk perspective as for an organization who yes. is trying to decide what to do? I think it would because uh, let me take a step back. Uh, some, many of the mainland Chinese to come to Hong Kong to study tells me they're surprised about the, the level of freedom that Hong Kong has and had. Uh, so they go like, oh, compared to China, we couldn't do this, we couldn't do that. And in Hong Kong, they could do quite a lot, okay? Apart from breaking the law, they could do virtually anything apart from breaking the law, okay? So, uh, but what happens now is that if, I think the, the G7 have to realize one thing is that because there are calls for independence of Hong Kong, that crossed the line for China. So once that line is crossed, they have to ensure sovereignty and territorial integrity as we did. So they are then bound to react to that because of the social movements in Hong Kong or, or some social movements in Hong Kong. Okay. So by doing that, uh, many people forget that the one country part of the two system. While everybody is well aware of the two system, but they forget that if you jeopardize that one country, uh, they would have to act. And the G7, by doing this, is not very helpful. Rather, I think it will be more helpful if there's a dialogue. So the G7 sit down with China and says, okay, let's have a dialogue. Let's talk things out. Uh, you know, let's have safeguards in place. Because China is also trying to reassure the Hong Kong public there's lots of safeguards, you know, that the, uh, one of the deputy pre premier came out in the media to say that you know Hong Kong as an international financial hub, as an international city, will not change in Hong Kong. The law would only apply to a minority of few, uh, majority you know, who are normal uh, law-abiding citizens of Hong Kong, uh, residents of Hong Kong, will not be affected at it by at all. Um, so, I guess now they're still drafting the law, and at the drafting stage, I think that's the important part of diplomacy would come in. But as opposed to diplomacy, I think the G7 decide to just, you know, put a megaphone and there's shout out demands. 
I think that doesn't help in the matter. Uh, negotiation and talking help, shouting at each other, I don't think it does at all. Okay. Well, let's move to, I guess, some of the other regulatory obligations. So in our last podcast, we spoke a bit about the, the complexity of attempting to comply um, with AML within Hong Kong and the sort of differing levels of regulation and knowing which way to go. Um, are there any other spaces other than the anti-money laundering space which are becoming more difficult to comply with because of the political and the pandemic environment? Um, yes, I think certainly that um, the financial hub, which includes uh, wealth management and insurance, I guess that uh, uh, would be coming up. At the moment, most of the uh, insurance policies of Chinese mainland is that the mainland Chinese would purchase the insurance policy in Hong Kong and you know uh, send the money uh, to pay for the premium. Uh, of course, it would be within the limit. I, I can't remember the limit that uh, the Chinese government set uh, for Chinese residents to send money overseas, but there's a uh, annual quota, as long as the premium is within the quota, they could continue doing that. So at the moment, that could be one-sided. And for those insurance policies, that if the Chinese resident who wants medical treatment would come to Hong Kong and then uh, draw from the insurance policy for the treatments. Now, if the integration would go much more than that, uh, then how does the regulatory authority and the regulations and the fine details of the law works out within the three jurisdictions of Macau, Hong Kong, and you know parts of China, I guess that level of compliance will certainly increase. But we also have ongoing problems with uh, the corporate governance. Now, we find a lot of corporate governance enforcement done by the Hong Kong Stock Exchange on uh, director-related issues are mainly, at the moment, we've seen the last two years, the data shows that most of them are mainland Chinese companies listed in Hong Kong. And the enforcement usually comes a bit late when those individuals have left the company, but still the uh, Hong Kong Stock Exchange still carry out with the enforcement with you know, uh, reprimands, uh, sometimes even disqualifications from uh, being a member of a Hong Kong listed company. So, or sorry, a, a company listed in Hong Kong. So uh, even so that's ongoing, but I heard that the problem still exists. So company secretaries find it difficult to convince uh, the Chinese companies in the mainland to do things differently because the companies may be, will have a set of different uh, rules to comply with in China compared to Hong Kong. And Hong Kong mainly being a fundraising and sometimes they only have a, a very small operation in Hong Kong, more or less a shell company and a small operation. So most of the operations in mainland China, but yet they have to comply with Hong Kong listing rules. So. Uh, that level of compliance uh, remains problematic. Uh, while it's still improving, I think that companies are, are now paying more attention uh, to see how they can comply, but I still see that level of tension still there. Uh, so at the listing rules compliance side, uh, mm -hmm. they're certainly on the financial services license, including insurance side, and of course the AML. So these are the main ones, but increasingly other areas uh, have been coming up. Things like food safety, uh, things like um, certain uh, export standards and so forth. So those might be creeping up slowly. But uh, at the moment, uh, and of course, once FinTech comes in, uh, at the moment, Hong Kong is taking a sandbox approach like 
uh, Australia with fintech, but I suspect uh, financial technology would be next area of problems because if the Chinese start regulating and Hong Kong start regulating, you'll still find the differences in how uh, the approaches are, the culture of regulations, and even how you go about compliance. So I guess that would be a, another area of tensions upcoming. It sounds like that might be an area of tension for some time. Oh, yes. Uh, in, in fact, uh, FinTech is, is now taught in Hong Kong as one of the growth areas. Uh, I suspect uh, the problems will emerge slowly, uh, but nobody have a crystal ball. So everybody is uh, taking a wait and see attitude and when it comes. So, um, and of course, the, many of the, some of the fintechs have already got virtual banking license in Hong Kong. There has been new virtual banking license being issued in Hong Kong. I, I can't remember how many of them, but off the top of my head, I think six to seven of them. Uh, mm. And that includes large companies like Tencent, which is, you know, the, the owner of one of the largest uh, IT companies in Hong Kong, I'm sorry, in China, that is stationed headquarters at Shenzhen just across the border. Uh, Alibaba also took out a virtual banking license. So you, you find many virtual banking uh, started now in Hong Kong and, you know, um, trying to attract deposits with high interest rates and try to attract loans with low interest rates. And it'll be interesting to watch that space. And for compliance professionals, uh, that uh, works across that because the idea of FinTech is just to make the border disappear online. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that works out uh, in the medium term uh, and in the longer term too. But going back to your previous answer, I mean, one of the things that we spoke about in the last podcast is that you did say that there was a rising sort of acknowledgement and a level of professionalism in AML compliance. And it sounds like from what you were saying that that might be happening in other types of compliance as well. Yes, I guess it is. But unfortunately, uh, that might not be guided by formal trading. So uh, I, I guess that many of those companies are looking for uh, reg tech or regulatory technology to assist the compliance professionals. So that, that's one. And second, I, I do hear uh, from practitioners that uh, many companies are going to consultants, uh, you know, the big consultants uh, for advice on that. So they're getting the consultants to do a bit more training, uh, in-house training for the compliance professionals, uh, getting reg tech and the consultants to help the compliance professional to, uh, you know, set up the framework and comply the whole system. Uh, but that means that there is no uh, standard form compliance. Mm -hmm. uh, so every company will be on their own, depending which uh, consultant they uh, have appointed and what software they're using. So it will vary. But certainly that's a good improvement from uh, trying to figure out your own to using more expert advice and using more software out there. But then again, uh, whether that can be adequate to meet the challenges in Hong Kong and China or between Hong Kong, China and Macau, uh, that's still, uh, that question is still up in the air. We will take time to see if that problem will be overcome. Okay, well, we've just about run out of time. So we'll try to end this on the advice piece. Um, I guess based on you know what you've been seeing in terms of companies trying to deal with crisis situations, whether it's political crisis or the, the pandemic, um, what advice do you have for risk and compliance professionals who are trying to get it right in these types of conditions? I guess uh, for the short term is that to work out on your risk scenarios, because I guess 
many of the compliance professionals are working uh, sort of uh, using those direct and uh, the uh, consultant's advice is more reactive. So they need to uh, certainly uh, put up the race risk part and then be more proactive. And in the proactive, work out more scenarios as in if a certain crisis would have occurred, what are the possible ways to be resilient and respond to it? Uh, that is certainly an important part that has not been looked at quite that much. But certainly not only COVID-19, um, the upcoming securities law and relationship with China, certainly a trade relationship across the world, because as protectionism is rising in certain countries and Hong Kong being an international cent uh, uh, trade hub, uh, depending on international trade, uh, would also have to be more cautious on you know other countries being putting up uh, non-tariff barriers or tariff barriers uh, as a compliance issue. I guess a compliance professional would have to be proactive using risk management, work out scenarios, using resilience to work out possible responses to that uh, instead of just you know a meltdown. I guess that would be very important for Hong Kong uh, compliance professional to do now and into the future. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time, Angus. Um, there's, there's always more to unpack every time we come to an end of a podcast. I can never say the issue's done. So you might be getting more questions from me in the future. Um, but thank you very much for your time. Um, thank you so much. having a podcast again. Always a pleasure to talk to you. This podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute, and the music was produced by Rob Neary.